Hello and welcome back to the Irish Tennis Updates podcast and welcome back to the history of Irish tennis with Tom Higgins. As always, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the earlier episodes if you haven't yet done that. This time around in episode four, Tom is discussing the Olympics and the Davis Cup, how those events started, have evolved and how Irish players have got on at them over the years. In the next episode, we will also be touching on the Fed Cup. Just before we get into this episode, a reminder that you can buy Tom's book, The History of Irish Tennis. And to do so, send Tom an email at higgins.tom at itsligo.ie. And I'm leaving that in the description as well. So do get in touch with Tom if you have any questions, any feedback, or if you have any interest in buying his book. So now let's get into this episode. And I started by asking Tom a bit about the very origins of the Olympic Games. Here we go. The modern Olympics started in 1896 in Athens, and it was a Frenchman, Baron Pierre de Coubertin, who came up with the idea. He actually came up with the idea in 1892 at um, an athletic sports union in, in the Sorbonne in Paris. And he, he made his appeal to the International Sports Festival with the view to organising a sports congress in Paris which was held in 1894. And that particular Congress of the sports people, it was unanimously agreed that Olympi Olympics should be commenced from the ancient Olympic Games in Greece. And two friends of the Barons, Greeks, they suggested from a historical point of view, Greece would be a good place to start. So that's really... That was two years ahead of when the games actually took, commenced. The Greeks initially welcomed the proposal, and then they suddenly realised that the Greek government had no funds to, to fund it. And it was offered to Hungary, who were the exact same situation, no money. And then eventually, a wealthy business, businessman called Georges Averoff from Alexandria and Egypt said he offered to build the Olympic Stadium. I've actually been, I, 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 know the, I know the stadium he's talking about, and they got backing from the Greek royal family as well. And they opened on the 6th of April, 1896, with 40,000 people in the stadium. And the date was picked, was picked deliberately by the Greeks because it was the seventh, 75th anniversary of the Declaration of Greek Independence from Turkey. Now, uh, there were 13 countries in the first games and 311 contestants, the vast majority of them were actually Greeks. And apart from athletics, there was lawn tennis, gymnastics, cycling, wrestling, swimming, shooting, fencing, and weightlifting. And according to a book by Norton and Watterson, it's about Irish athletics, they said that at the time, quite a number of world records in athletics were actually held by Irish people. Now, uh, two years after the Games, a fellow called Newburn, an Irish fellow, he actually had a world long jump record of 24 feet, 5.5 of an inches, which is about a metre more than the actual gold medalist who, that won it in, in Athens. So he would, have walked, he would have walked the competition if he had been in it. There were other Irish players as well, or Irish athletes as well. And David Guiney wrote a book about this. He said it was, it was almost certain his absence, that's the absence of Peter O'Connor, from County Wicklow, from Ashford, County Wicklow, from earlier games stemmed from his known protests that an Irishman should represent his own country. In other words, we were part of Britain at the time and, and he wanted to be 
there as an Irish representative. At the Games in 1906, Peter O'Connor went along and he actually he won the long jump. And after winning the triple jump, he climbed to the top of the pole, pole flag in Athens and replaced the Union Jack with the green flag. That was 1906. That was called the interim games. Now, do you want to know something about the Irish players now that are? Yeah. So in terms of Irish players in tennis, yeah, that'd be that'd be great. Yeah. Well, back in the first games, a fellow called John Pius Boland. You may have heard of Boland's Bakery in Dublin, famous bakery. The same, the exact same family. He went to study in Germany, and he. In case I forget to mention it, he joined the Nationalist Parliamentary Party, party and he got himself elected from for North, North Kerry to the, to the Parliament in London. And he was unique in the sense that, well, while Trinity College would have been the big university, there was discussion about having a national university. And he actually was the one that came up with that particular type of the, the National University of Ireland. Now, is tennis. While he was studying in Germany, he was friendly with a Greek lad who suggested that uh, why don't you come down to Athens for having these games going on down to Athens for a holiday and off he goes to Athens. Heiner Gilmeister, the German who wrote a very very famous book on the cultural history of tennis, he got his hands on John Boland's diaries and I have a couple of little quotes here that, that are relevant to his, his journey. Yeah. It included going down through Italy, getting a boat, boat across to Greek Greece, and he literally took us several weeks to get down there. And he said when he got there, the journey took forever. And when he got to, to Greece, he actually ended up chatting in a restaurant to some Greeks about the Olympic Games. I'll, I'll just read you a, a quote from his diary or from uh, Gilmeister's book. The story of how Boland eventually found himself in the Olympic lawn tennis event is very different from that found in the handbooks. In the evening of the 6th of April, a Monday, an English-speaking Greek from Alexandria called Cass Douglas sat opposite Boland at dinner, presumably at the Metropole, and deploring the small number of contestants in the Olympic tennis event suggested to him to have a go, a go at it. So the Irishman was delighted. He hadn't been practicing tennis at all. He, and he offered to be Cass Douglas's partner in the doubles and also to compete in the singles. So they went along the next morning and Cass Douglas went to the committee room and he, he said all the Greeks were all paired up with each other. So he was actually, he had no partner. However, there was a free player from Germany, actually, I think he was from Austria, and he teamed up with Boland in the doubles. Now, that was on the early part of the week. And when the, when the tennis actually started a few days later, Poland had to have a practice and he got through the trials with too much difficulty. And he wrote in his diary that he was playing awfully initially, but he eventually won against one of the Greeks, six, love 2662. And then he met another Greek later on in the semi-final. And in the final, he played against Castaglis, the man who initially discussed yeah, the tennis with them and beat him in, in two sets. Boland played with playing with Tron, who was actually from Hamburg. They beat two Greeks, Castaglis and a fellow called Petro Kokoninos. They beat them 5 7 6 3 6 3. So within the space of an hour and a half, 
he actually won the men's doubles and the men's singles, thus getting himself two gold medals. But in fact, at that time, it wasn't even gold medals. They received a diploma and a large cardboard case and a medal, a medal in a case and a branch of olive a couple of feet long, which, which presumably came from Mount Olympus. Now, in the 1900 Games in Paris, Arad Mahoney, we, we mentioned before as a winner of the Wimbledon singles at one stage, he came runner-up to one of the Doherty brothers, Lawrence Doherty, in, a, in the final. So he won, he won himself a silver medal. He also won a bronze medal in the doubles with a uh, fellow called Norris. And in the mixed doubles, he won a, a silver playing with a, a French woman, Aline Prevost. That was in the Olympics in Paris. We had no representatives at the St. Louis Games. In 1908, we had a representative in the form of James Cecil Park. Now, I've done a fair bit of digging on Park, and I'd like to give you some details about him because this man is phenomenal. He played with Major Ritchie in Great Britain in the men's doubles and got the silver Olympic uh, silver in the Olympics in 1908. I, I'll be talking about Park in later on about the relations to the, the Davis Cup. Leaving that aside for a minute, Park is in the Guinness Book of Facts and Tweets as the best all-round sportsman of the world who was a tennis player. And the reason is as follows. He was born of Clonus, and when he was about nine or ten years of age, he won some big chess, some chess competition. Now, okay. what else he did when he was younger is hard to know, but we know that when he was about 19, he won his first tennis tournament in Clonus. And he went to Trinity College, and at Trinity, he played cricket. He was sprinting. He won a lot of, an awful lot of races. And as far as I can make out, he won the Trinity Championships three years in a row, uh, 1902 to 1904, sometime, sometime around that. What he did tennis-wise, in addition to that, is he won eight Irish singles championships between 1904 and 1913. He won the men's doubles five times, the mixed doubles twice. In, at Wimbledon, he was a semi-finalist in the men's singles in 1910 and 1913, and a finalist in the men's doubles in 1911, 1912, 1913, and 1920. He went off during the First World War and got himself injured. He was ranked in 1912 by American Tennis Journal. In those days, there was no official world rankings as the number one in the world. A different ranking, which probably a GB, an English source, at rank number six in 1914. So he was well up there. Now that's, they said, uh, while he was at university, he excelled at cricket. He excelled at sprinting. And his tennis is, there's umpteen stories about, about his tennis. But one little thing we've left out is his rugby. And his rugby career, at 1904, he got his first cap uh, when he played against England. And by 1909, he had accumulated 20 caps. Now, in those, in those 20 uh, inter rugby internationals, he was the captain three times. And he obviously must have been good at kicking because a lot of the matches, he actually was the one that got, scored the penalty or the convert, as well as scoring some tries. Mm. He's fairly unique in the sense that he played in the first match Ireland ever played against New Zealand which is in 1905. 
And then the first match Ireland ever played against South Africa, we scored a penalty goal against them in 1906. And the first match ever, as far as I can make out the records, against France when Ireland beat them 1908 and he had a penalty goal and a convert during that 1909 match. So he had a career of uh, five years in the, uh, at the top level in, in rugby, but an all-rounder, very high standing. Uh, I can talk about his, his Davis Cup in, in, a, in a little while. So we'll go back to the Olympics. So 1928, games weren't held. As far as I think it was 28 that they stopped playing the, the in tennis. And in 1968, the sport of tennis was a demonstration sport in Mexico. Then 1988, we have South Korea. And in that particular case, qualified to play were Owen Casey and Owen Collins. And they lost in the first round of the men's doubles. Owen Casey he was there again in Barcelona and he lost in the first round of the sing singles. And he and Owen Collins in the doubles in the first round of 32 player, 32 pairings qualified. And they beat 6-4 and their opponents retired. And in the next round, they played against a Swiss pair in the round of 16. They got into the last round of 16. In fact, I was at that match in Barcelona okay. and uh, from Switzerland. 7-6-6-3-6-4, which is a useful score, considering Marc Rosset that year won the gold medal in the singles. That was in 1992. 1996, Stone Casey was there again, as you probably know, this time with Scott Barron. And they lost in the first round of the doubles to Grant Connell and a fellow called Daniel Nestor, who you may have heard of, who was a useful Canadian. Uh, That's really interesting, Tom, to hear about all that success at the Olympics from the really, really early editions and, and the medals we've won through to the more recent games um, and the, the players I'd be a bit more familiar with recently. And to move on now to, to look at the Davis Cup. How did the Davis Cup start and, and how did Irish players fare in the early editions of that competition? The, the Davis Cup, as, as we all know, started in 1900. And how, how it came about was that there were three young Americans who were at university and they, one of them was a fellow called Dwight Philly Davis. This is where the Davis Cup comes from. He was originally from St. Louis in Missouri and they were in Harvard. And they traveled over to the West Coast of America to play tennis matches. And on the way over, the way back, they thought, this would be an idea to have an international challenge cup with, with Great Britain. They initially went to the American National Lawn Tennis Association in the January of 1900. And they wrote and turned to the British Association to have a challenge match. And would you believe six months later, the match was organized in America. And it was an eight-day sewage voyage for the British to go over there. And it was played in Boston that summer. Uh, in the initial match, the actual Americans won the match by three, three matches to nil. And there were only, obviously, two countries playing. What happened subsequently was that 1901, the following year, the Doherty brothers, who were the top English players at the time, hadn't been there for the first match. And the British said, there's no point going over there, we're going to be beaten again unless we have the Doherty brothers. So no match was held in 1901. And then 1902, they went over to America and the British, they lost it narrowly, 3-2. But then the next four years on the trot, the British Isles won 1903 to 1908, 1906, sorry. They actually won the cup. Now at that stage, 
some other countries started joining in. And there were five countries in 1905. And in 1907, uh, Australia were involved. 1912 was a very interesting year. And that year, British beat France. Whoever won through had to go out to Australia. And the Americans dropped out. So the British Isles had a walkover to go then and play the Australasians and Park was selected. The interesting thing about that particular match was this team going from Britain out to Australia. They got a great sending off at the railway station in London, presumably. And they went by boat and it took them a long, long time to get there. But they were known as the team of forlorn hope. There was the hope and hell of them beating the Australians who had on their team Brooks. Brooks was by far the best player in the world at that stage, Norman Brooks. And when they got there, he was, by the way, Brooks was known as the wizard. And when it was the match was played, Park in the opening match played against Brooks in the singles. And quite a number of different descriptions have been made of, the, of that particular match. Now, Park, don't forget, he was a rugby player. He was very fast. He used to run around the court like nobody's business. And he chased everything down. People, various descriptions of his tennis have said that he was so good that fellas thought they'd winners and Parker would get it back and get the ball past him. So yeah. he was a baseline player, basically, who chased everything. We arrived, according to one of the descriptions of Park himself year, a few years later, we arrived, we arrived in Melbourne about the middle of October when the cup races were on. These are the, the horse racing were on. And we simply were overwhelmed with the invitations to all sorts of amusements most of which we accepted. Indeed, I think the Australians began to doubt whether we come to play lawn tennis or need to enjoy ourselves. We had a right royal time when it, when it, while it lasted. And I know I was at five dances in one week. And if we ha hadn't been successful in the tennis, I, I wouldn't even confess, confess this, he said. But we cut out all the festivities for three full weeks and trained hard before the matches were, were, were actually played. In the first, uh, this is a, from another source, in the first match, Park was sent out to play against Brooks, the unbeatable Brooks, so I was told. And Park himself, a lucky charm, he, someone sent him a couple of four-leaf shamrocks, which he, he sewed into, his, into his, t his tennis shirt for good luck. Yeah. And it, it, it worked for him. Brooks got to a 4-1 lead in the first set before Park could gauge the speed of his serve or get used to its bound. Brooks at this point, in fact, up to the third set, using his straight, fast service without the American twist. The Americans invented a sort of a, a cut service, which everybody else is trying to copy. Brooks right. didn't, didn't need it. He had a flat, a flat, fast service. When Park became accustomed to this, he hit his return very fast. As I said to you, Parks was fairly fast and firmly over the court. On the backhand, he played a fairly high, slow shot at Brooks's body and waited for the return which was not punched. And he then drove the ball joyously and with the utmost extraordinary accuracy all over the court, passing Brooks clean at times with the finest cross-court drives. The score eventually was 8-6-6-3-5-7-6-2. And then Parks's partner, Dixon, went on and beat Heath, the other uh, Australasian, uh, in, the, in the other singles. Park described this match as the most nerve-wracking match I've ever watched. That's the Heath match and Park and Beanish partner lost the, the doubles to Brooks and a fellow called Dunlop. The match was tied at two all. So it came down to the last match. This is Park's reverse singles. Okay. And in the reverse singles, he was playing against Heath, 
and he won that in three comfortable sets. The cup went back to to the UK. I think the UK might have thought that they should own it. They'd won it for four years and the trot in the 1900s, but uh, it took a while, a while to get it back. Apparently, the Australians had won that cup for something like five years on the trot, and the, the wife of Norman Brooks used to keep the Davis Cup on her sideboard with full of flowers. <laughs> it became a permanent fixture in the home. So I think they, were, they weren't expecting this. But, uh, but there, there was an interesting descriptions, but there, there are several interesting descriptions of that particular match. J.C. Parks, this, by the way, it was written years ago. So J.C. Park electrified everyone in the opening match by beating Norman Brooks in four sets. Park was an Irish rugby international and he moved about a lawn tennis court at express speed, often getting back almost impossible shots for complete winners. That's fascinating to hear, Tom, about all that success that there was for, for Park back in the very early days of, of Davis Cup. But to, to bring it a little bit forward now, um, what can you say about, about when Ireland had its own team and, and how Irish Davis Cup teams have got on over the years? So in 1923, the number of countries participating had increased substantially. And this was the first time that Ireland would have their own team. And they had quite a number of players doing, obviously in the early parts of lawn tennis, quite a great success, the golden period. And then during the 1910s, Cecil Park was definitely one of, one of a few top players in, in, in Irish tennis. But when it came to the 1920s, he, he had stopped playing competitively. And other players were coming up to the fore. And among these is a fellow called Cecil Campbell. And Cecil Campbell was a member of the Swillian Tennis Club, but he was on the team that played against India in Ireland's very first opening Davis Cup match in 1923 in the European Zone. Cecil Campbell was in, in his singles against a fellow called Fayez and his partner, McCrae, E.G. McCrae, he won his singles as well. And McCrae also won singles, two singles, I should say. So we Ireland beat India three matches to two in the first round. The second round, Ireland played against France. And this is unique in so far as there's a famous quartet. If you look up your tennis history, there's a famous quartet of French players known as the Four Musketeers. And between them, they were winning titles all over the world and Davis, Davis Cups as well. Their first outing ever together was to come to Dublin and play in the second round of the Davis Cup in 1923 against uh, Ireland. And in that match, France beat Ireland four matches to one. Despite the fact that the four Musketeers would subsequently become very famous, most of those matches actually were very, very tight. But there's a little bit about, about, about Campbell where I wanted to mention about that. I just this is an extract from a small extract from Fitzwilliam history because they, they were both members of the, the, the Irish Davis Cup team were all members of the Fitzwilliam Club at the time. Mm. When, Ar when Ireland won against India three matches to two, they played in the second round and they were drawn against the legendary four Musketeers, Barotra, Cochet, Lacoste, and Brugnon. Despite the presence of the French players, the man who dominated the three days was Cecil Campbell. During the matches, you occasionally take a break between sets and back into the pavilion. Now, this is not unusual <laughs> at that time. And W. Sands, who was a famous organiser in Fitzwilliam later on, as he was a schoolboy at the time, followed him in once into the pavilion to see what he was up to. He was in there, he was taking a couple of glasses of brandy. 
to get to get, uh, get active again. And it wasn't unusual in those times to have a cup of brandy or a bit of champagne. I've I've heard cases of people like that before uh, to get get going for the next the next uh, next set, as the case may be. He saw Campbell take two glasses of brandy and Claude looking extremely well. And the encounter with France was packed with excitement. Campbell beat Borotra in straight sets and was a tremendous victory in itself. Borotra had a, vi a vivid memory of this visit to Fitzwilliam and he wrote down the following about this visit. This was the occasion that the four members of the team later called the Musketeers played together for the first time. I will never forget the marvellous welcome we got from Fitzwilliam. My match with Cecil Campbell a great player with the lion's heart and a glorious forehand, I will never forget. That forehand was dangerous for any incoming volleyer, and especially for one who, like me at the time, had as his forehand just a slow chop, without which I could perhaps never reach Cecil's backhand. The result was that he passed me time after time when he came to the net. That defeat proved very important for me, added to other defeats it convinced me that I would not possess it with a, power, a powerful forehand, which would be effective. I would not be able to beat a really great player. And he started working immediately to improve his forehand. And says then, I made good progress. And later on, 1924, he, he beat Cecil Campbell at Wimbledon in a very hard match. And he finally, he actually won Wimbledon that year. So Campbell was up there. In fact, I think Campbell was in the Wimbledon quarterfinals several times in that period. He was definitely up there with the best. If I move forward to the 1930s, we have another interesting year, a year a time in terms of Davis Cup and Irish tennis. Uh, in, in 1936, there were quite a number of teams in the country uh, in the competition at that stage. And in the first round, Ireland, well, in fact, we got a buy into the second round. Second round, Ireland played against Sweden. At this point in time, we had George Littleton Rogers, the big tall player I mentioned in a previous podcast, who had trained, lived in the south of France and was actually ranked as one of the top players in France at the time. And he was a very, very good player. He, in this match against Sweden, which was held in Dublin, uh, beat Schroeder five sets. And George McVeigh, his partner, beat Schroeder in five sets and he beat the other uh, Swiss or Swedish player in three sets. Having beaten Sweden, Ireland went into the next round, the third round, against Switzerland in Dublin. Rogers won his singles, and then he lost his reverse singles. McVeigh lost one of his singles in five sets, and in his other singles against the Swiss number one, everyone was amazed when McVeigh beat him. And in the reverse singles, and this was to be the clincher, clinching match, in the fourth set it was 9 all. Then McVeigh led on Elmer's serve and went down to win 11-9. The spectators, the, you can imagine the excitement in Dublin, beating the, beating the Swiss and the Swiss number one especially. And literally he was lifted up and carted off the court in, in, great, in great celebrations. The score put Ireland into the semi-final. But this is where the, the semi-final of the European zone. Okay. Now, at that point in time, the way the World Davis Cup tennis was operated, there were only two zones. Europe and the American zone. The Australians had to play in America and all the European zones included, uh, would you believe it included Argentina. So Ireland now getting into the semi-final of the European zone. Now unfortunately they went to Berlin and the great uh, von Kram was playing for Germany and he literally lifted the 
Germans and they, they beat the Irish pairing five matches to nil. And that was the end of our exploits in the 1930s. I jump forward to 1981. Ireland in the first round in Zone B, European Zone B, beat Norway 3-2. Peter Hannan lost his singles. Matt Doyle won his singles. And then Matt Doyle and Sean Sorensen, who as a pairing have one of the best records for Irish, for Irish Davis Cup pairings. They actually be, uh, won their sets with only losing three games in the men's doubles. So Ireland actually beat Norway 3-2 in Oslo. But there's a little story that goes with that. At this stage, Sean Sorensen, who was originally from Cork, was now married in, in Germany. The match was on in Norway. And the problem was that his wife was expecting. So, so on the Friday, the initial match, Peter Hannan lost his singles and Matt Doyle won his singles. The plan was to get Sean Sorensen in for the doubles with Matt Doyle, which would have been a dead cert for, for winning. Harley persuaded the local, local organisers in Oslo to have the day of the doubles match, they decided to have an exhibition match as well. So he said to your local organisers to have the exhibition match first and then people will stay on for the men's doubles when Sean Sorensen arrived. This tactic was to give Sean time to get there, to fly from Germany up to Oslo yeah. in time for the doubles. And Harry kept phoning up. And of course, there's no mobiles in those days, but he kept in touch with my phone with Sean on a landline. And his flight should get him into play his match and he should be time enough to get back to Germany for the birth of the son. Yeah. The phone call comes from Sean to Harry Barnival and he says, uh, Sean, where are you? I'm at the Oslo airport, he says. He's already got, he's already got there. So now the big thing about it is Harry Barnfell has already persuaded the Norwegians to hold the exhibition match first with the men's doubles afterwards. Now he has to go back. He says, to them, he says to them, diplomacy prevailed. Harry persuaded them to switch it around so the men's doubles would be played first. And he said maybe the audience want to, want to go off and watch the television because the FA Cup final was on that day. So he got the match reversed. Sean rushes in to play the doubles with Matt Doyle. They'll win at 6-1, 6-love, 6-2. And then he heads back immediately for the airport and back to Germany. Yeah. And that day, the tie was won on the Sundays with Matt, Matt winning the reverse singles. They won it three matches to two. But that day, Kevin Sorensen, who subsequently would be Davis Cup player, was born on the 10th of May, 1981. And he, he himself, in 2004, would become a Davis Cup player. I, I, think, I think it's a fascinating story how... How to win a Davis Cup match without mobile phones, get Sean Sorensen in and back to Germany in time for the birth of his son. In the next round of the matches, Ireland were beaten 4-1 by Holland in the, in the quarterfinals. Both Doyle and Sorensen were beaten and they won the men's doubles, so they only won one of the four matches, well, one of the five matches. And that is where we are going to leave this episode of the podcast. I really enjoyed getting to hear all about the Irish success at the Olympics, the Davis Cup, especially, I found it really fascinating, the, the early 20th century action for the Irish players and, and then the, the great success that we did have back then. As always, uh, a huge thanks to Tom for his time. I really appreciate the time he is putting into these. And the next episode, episode five, will be the final part of the series. We'll be touching on, as I mentioned, the Fed Cup, along with a, a number of other topics so which i'm really looking forward to episode five so please do join us again for that episode and if you enjoyed this one please do share it around share it with anybody else that you think might enjoy us and with that 
I will see you next time and goodbye.